Psalm 39. I'm going to preach through this entire psalm. I'm going to read it here and then I'll pray. To the choir master, to Jejuthun, a psalm of David. I said I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. O Lord, make me to know my end, and what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my life is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath, Selah. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Selah. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. Let's pray together. Our Father, the humility that you have brought David to, the great king, is um, breathtaking, Lord, and what you can do to the, to the greatest of men and women in this earth, Lord, we, we know from Scripture that we can't conceive how quickly we could succumb to illness or some sort of tragedy or some sort of injury or something that impairs our goals or our designs or even the people that we love and the hurt that comes upon them. Lord, David understands whatever he's going through uh, ultimately in the final analysis has been ordained by you. Lord, he has a high view of who you are, as we all should. Lord, as we understand this psalm, help us to have faith, help us to end and fall where David fell, that his hope is in you. Lord, and help us to remember that in the gospel, Lord, um, we have meaning, we have assurance that our hope is not in vain. In Jesus' name, amen. So the title of the psalm, Jejuthun, he talks about Jejuthun. Uh, write that down for potential baby names, huh, Jejuthun? It's too close to Jedediah, I guess, so maybe we couldn't use it. Um, but as the title implies, he was one of the music directors, one of the choir directors of Israel. First Chronicles 16, verse 41 says, With them were Heman and Jejuthun, they were Levites, and the rest of those chosen and expressly named to give thanks to the Lord, for his steadfast love endures forever. Heman and Jejuthun had trumpets and cymbals for music and instruments for sacred song. The sons of Jejuthun were appointed to the gate. So in this text, we see that Jejuthun was a musician. Another text, it says that he sung. He was a singer. And he also appointed his sons to the gate. There was a, there was a sense that this is a very important man in Israel. And here is the king writing a hymn for Jejuthun. And I think that means for Jejuthun to use in the outworking of the ministry that he was called to minister to. So 
King David, the psalmist, is writing a psalm for Jejuthun, but we need to understand that this psalm was meant to be sung by the congregation of Israel. The people of Israel were to come together and sing this psalm as a matter of worship. And that's really interesting when we get into the theme or what the psalm is about. This psalm, is, as you may have caught on as I was reading, is not a simple psalm. It's not a, it's not, it's not a bestseller big book sort of like a health and wealth psalm, is it? It's not the Joel Olstein psalm, uh, your best life now psalm, right? You're not going to sell a thousand copies of the content of the psalm, and yet it's a psalm for worship. The theme of this psalm is closely related to Psalm 38, where David is crying out in a torment uh, of soul. He's under a great distress, and we believe that distress was caused by his sin with Bathsheba, and all the subsequent things that happen as a result of that. I don't think that this psalm necessarily relates to that exact sin, but this psalm has David suffering, and David is baffled that God would concern himself with him. In fact, in a sense, Derek Kiner is a commentator. Uh, he's passed away now. But, but he says... The psalm really is regard, in regards to David asking God this question. Why do you care about us to the degree that you, would, that you would discipline us? Why do you care about little old us? We were talking with our kids this week about how vast the universe is, how big it is. They were talking about Beetlejuice. Luther, find a seat. Sit down, buddy. Have a seat right there next to uncle. There you go. Aiden, seat forward, since mom's away every... <laughs> okay, there you go. All right. So the universe is big, right, kiddos? It's big. And one of the questions is, that comes to our mind, the psalmist asks, what is man that you were mindful of us in, in Psalm 8? Well, David, Derek Kinder said, is sort of doing the same thing. Job, chapter 7, verse 17 says, Job said, what is man that you make so much of him? What do you make so much of him and that you set your heart on him? What do you, he's asking God, why do you bother with us? And in the context of this bothering is the suffering that we go through. So there's, but there's something implied in all of that, isn't there? That God is involved. Now, we love that he's involved when it comes to his merciful providences, don't we? Hey, we got a, a new house la this year, you know? Oh, thank you, Lord. Right? But when it comes to the suffering, we want to say, well, why do you care? It, there's sort of a, a catch-22 there because we want him to care, but then when it comes, how do we process suffering? How do we understand it biblically? First, we see in the psalm, something very important, that David restrains his complaint. In verses 1 and 2, he restrains himself. We see it again later. This is important. Verses 1 and 2, I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. You hear that? I will guard my ways that I might not sin with his tongue. His ways will be defined by what he says, I think is that is what he means. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. That's his concern. He doesn't want to sin in a way 
that betrays something to the wicked. Verse 2, I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse. So the first thing he says is, I care that the wicked not hear my complaint. There's something about what he has to complain or what he has to say that he believes if the wicked hear it, they will, they will have fuel to their unbelief or to their rebellion, to their wickedness. In verse 2, he says that although he was silent, his distress grew worse, which is very interesting. This is something seemingly that modern science is, is somewhat learned is you can't just sort of bundle everything up inside of us, right? There is a sense if you start bundling everything else inside, everything that bothers us inside of us, there's a sense that usually you're going to explode with something, even if it's something indirectly related to what you want to say. And usually what you do is more harmful than if you would just come out with what you need to say. But I find here then two principles that are really important. David knows there's something there's something very important about restraining what he has to stay in front of certain people. And I thought, man, we need to hear that. I know it's a little small, small group here tonight. But don't we know the problems that happen now, especially with social media, when you go on there and you just let it out, right? You go on there and you let it out, and that's not a controlled environment you have unbelievers, you have believers who are your friends, you have family, and every people take it the wrong way, right? Well, David's complaint is something, as we'll see, that the ungodly will take. In fact, unbelievers use the very thing he complains about to bolster their unbelief. I think David is very aware of that. And so he's not going to just put it out there. He's going to contain it. But when he does... It just builds. It builds. It builds up in him. So what do we do if we can't just blast it out there on social media because we care that our unbelieving friends and, and relatives come to faith in Christ? We don't want to bolster their unbelief because David is not seeing himself as an unbeliever. Look at, he says in verse 1, I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. He doesn't see himself, even though... He believes he's being chastised because of sin. He's not part of that category of wicked. Remember the category in the Psalms of wicked and righteous have to do with those who trust God or those who do not trust God, who will commit their ways unto the Lord or who do not. It's not necessarily those who sin or those who don't sin. All of us are sinners. And so he's very concerned that he not give the wicked any ammunition, but he does speak. How does he speak? He speaks in prayer. This is, this is the answer to, to the problem that so many in our society don't understand. I think people naturally understand this is not the right time to say that. Even, even sinners understand there is there's a time for everything under heaven. But, but what about when a believer is so boiling? In, in fact, in verse 3, look at verse 3. My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned, and I spoke with my tongue. In other words, it's just boiling over. I'm sure you felt like that. Like where whatever you're containing is just boiling over and over and over and over. And that's something I need to be very careful about because I preach and, and stuff. I don't want it boiling over when I preach. 
So go to God in prayer. Look at, look at verse 4. This is a prayer of honest assessment, and it's really in three parts. Verse 4, O Lord, make me know my end, and what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely all man goes about as a shadow, for surely, surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. So this is a prayer of honest assessment. Verses 3 and 4 is the other side of wisdom then. So you hold your mouth because you don't know this, how the wicked are going to react to this. You see, this is the complaint. He's under severe trial, and he understands that this, this, this life is a, just a part. It's so small. It's so minuscule. It's so uh, brief. And he describes it here in various ways. He begins by asking God to reveal to him the temporal nature of his own life. So this is part of his prayer. I, I want to know my, that my life, the, the truth about my life. I don't know how this worked in David. I don't know if his trial made him come to a point of weakness that he sort of now recognized that, hey, I'm not going to be here forever. I'm not going to last. I'm a gr he was a great king, but there's an end to it. And so he wants God to tell him the truth about his condition Our days, he says, are measured as if they were a vapor or a mist here. James 4.14 illustrates what David is praying about. What is your life? For you are a mist or a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Our days as a measure are brief. They're, it's here and they're gone. I mean, I, I've, been list, I've been reading uh, a book on the Second World War, and that wasn't that long ago. And you, you read about 16-year-old boys, 17, 18, 19, and their life was brief, and they step out of a boat getting on, trying to storm ashore, and it's done. It's over. But, but a 16-year-old, you double that, and now you're at 32, right? Uh, that was a few years ago for me. That, that seemed like a long time ago when I was their age. And as, as now I'm 40, I'm looking at my life and I'm going, thank you for giving me 40 years. And the rest are going to go fast. Things don't, you know, as, as our time expands, comparatively speaking, to the time allotted to us and to the, to the time that, that there is in creation and such, we're just a brief speck. And this honest assessment leads often to carelessness or despair in those who are the ungodly. Or, hey, if, if this is all there is, I'm going to live it up, right? I mean, if this is eat and drink and be merry, which doesn't necessarily mean party hard, but it does mean at least just be happy with the, 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 the things that you have to, to take. And, and really, according to Ecclesiastes, that's as good as it gets in this life. Eat and drink and be merry. That's as good as it gets when it comes to life under the sun. But David sees and he acknowledges that 
God is superior. He, has, he is sovereign in all of this. And that's the difference between the unrighteous and the righteous. The unrighteous will look at this and they will say, this is just the condition of man. When the skeptics or when the existentialists or when uh, the, the uh, I can't remember that philosophical word I'm looking for, but they look out at the condition of man and they say it's for nothing. It's just all in vain. They, they, they end where Ecclesiastes end or begin there, but that's it with them. They don't see any, any design of God in it. And so there's no hope for them. There's, in their honest assessment of life under the sun, there's no hope. And a lot of people nowadays, they want to say, well, it is the memories, the memories themselves, the, the immediate. But what about the persons? What about the people who only know suffering? You know, I think of my dad who has been dealing with his ailment for 20 years. And I think if, if he didn't have hope under the sun, what would his life be? What would his purpose be? Where would he find the ability when we go and visit him to smile and to say, everything's okay. He can't walk. He can't do all the things that you and I take for granted. Where does he get the hope? It's not because of the physical things. It's not because of what he can do. It's not because of his abilities. It's not because of the things that we often find necessary for our happiness. It's because of his hope in God. Behold, you have made, listen to what he said, you have made my days a few handbreaths. A handbreadth is the span of the width of a hand, a man's hand. It was, I think, this, one of the smallest uh, units for measurement in building in those days, a handbreadth. And he says, this is a few handbreadths. My lifetime is as nothing before you. And that's the truth. Before God, who, who is limitless in time, our, our lives are nothing in comparison. The final phrase of verse 5 connects the thought of verse 6, though. Surely all mankind, all mankind, stands as mere breath. The, the word for breath there is the Hebrew word hebel. And that, that word is his exact word. If you go to Ecclesiastes, if you want to read through that sometime, it's, it's the word vanity, vanity of vanities. And it, here it's rendered breath. And, and that's how he described man, all mankind. Verse 6, surely a man goes about as a shadow, surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. For nothing man is in turmoil. And you can hear the words of the preacher in Ecclesiastes saying, vanity of vanity, all is vanity. For David, perhaps the shock is that he stands in the same place here as all mankind. He's not one of the wicked. Temporalness is something that all mankind faces under the sun. What does this mean of our lives? It, the, the words could be translated, is, it is as if the shadow, it is as if we were phantoms. What does it mean to our labor? He says, man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. We work, you work every day. You're working every day. You're working and you're working. We're all working every day. What does it mean? Who will gather it? We're, we're, labor is an aspect of, of uh, investment. We're investing in things. And David is saying, why? 
<laughs> what are we in, if we're going to invest in things that other people just take, why the investment? What about our pains and passions? Are we a useless passion, like the existentialist said? But there is a difference here. This honesty, this assessment that David has in his prayers, seen second in this prayer as in a confession, verse 7. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? For, for what do I wait? And that's a huge question. If this life is a vapor, it appears for a little time. If we're phantoms, as it were, if we're working hard and other people will increase from our toil. Notice he doesn't say we shouldn't work. He's just saying, what's it all about? What do I wait for? In my dilemma, in my suffering. And then he has it very clearly here. And I really think this is the, the key to the text. This little sentence, my hope is in you. I think that's the key to the entire text and what follows as well. In other words, to whom can I go? Where else can I turn? Remember uh, when Jesus asked Peter, uh, will you also go away? And Peter says, where do we go? From where do we go? You only have the words of eternal life. I think implied in that is that I think Peter probably, even by the way he lived his life, understood he sort of seems like sort of like a skeptic, doesn't he? I mean, he's the one looking to Jesus and then looking at the thing. You know, he wants to know <laughs> all there is to know about the, 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 how things are working, but he says only you have the words of eternal life. David says in his confession, there is no one else. If we, if our condition is that we're like phantoms, then what do we hold on to? Do we hold on to going to Mars or being frozen and being revived one day? You know, in, in a sense, we live in the Western world. We have a, long, a longer lifespan than the previous thousands of years on the earth. And yet, in a sense... We just prolong the inevitable. You, you know, we have all of these life-saving measures, which I'm thankful for, but death is still inevitable. And, and as long as it's inevitable, I think David would say, mankind, all mankind, is a phantom. It's a shadow. What we need, then, is someone who's not bound in vanity himself. What we need is someone who is outside of the vanity itself. Not just nature. The answer can't be in nature. It can't be in the created things. Even stars are, have a lifespan. The answer of hope, the answer for hope against this sort of vanity, can only be God. This reminds me of Psalm 73 after the psalmist is wrestling, and, and he's wrestling with the advantage of the wicked in this life over the righteous. But he comes to himself and he says, when my soul was embittered, verse 21, when I was pricked in my heart, he understands now his wrong thinking. Verse 25, this is his profession after that understanding. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. Listen, that's a portion that will never be taken away. The, the vanity, the 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 eternal, the, the imminency of this life that, that 
that it's brief. It's, it's always somewhat coming to an end. He says in verse 26, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. In our psalm, we see that David, we will see that David, although not altogether encouraged that his suffering will end, he doesn't know if it will end. And perhaps he's even discouraged that it won't. Yet he knows that God is his only hope in it. And that is hope. That's real hope. The Romans says, Paul says in Romans 8, that hope is something to wait for, but that those who believe the gospel will wait for it. We with patience wait for it. Third, forgiveness, sin, and restoration. Verses 8 through 11. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you that have done it. He understands God is the one underneath it all. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. That word again, really defining vanity. Now this prayer of repentance has three components to it. At the root is David's acknowledgement of his rebellion. Transgressions mean his rebellion against what God has revealed to him. And prayer, his prayer to turn from it. It's a prayer of repentance. Repentance is not a subcomponent to the believer's walk. In fact, repentance actually demonstrates that our hope is in God. Because transgression and rebellion is a turning away from God, repentance is a turning back to God, a turning away from our sin, the thing that we understand. God does not will for us to do. The very fact of faith makes repentance inevitable as long as we are sinning or when we sin. Faith gives us the right view of God, who He is. Saving faith understands that God is holy, but it recognizes also in that understanding of God that we, can, that we joyfully submit to His absolute right to be obeyed. Faith understands that in light of who he is, we lament our own unrighteousness. We desire him. Faith does not just know about God. The demons know about God. Saving faith doesn't just know something about God. It longs for him. It loves him. It rejoices in him. And this is really what the burden of sin is in a Christian, is that when we sin, we sin against our hope, the one we hope in. We sin against the one that we delight in. I don't know. I mean, we have married couples here today. I sure hope that we don't love offending our spouse. I, I sure hope we don't, we're not comfortable with that. And really, the same inclination when we offend and we do wrong to one another on a, on a bigger scale is how we should feel and, and why we should move in that knowledge to repentance when it comes to our offenses towards God. His restoration, he believes, uh, it, sorry, he, he doesn't want in his render, restoration to hinder the, the wicked. He says, the scorn of the fool. These are those whom he wishes not to hear of his grief and discipline by the hand of God. And see that again. That's not very clear. I didn't make that very clear. He says, I am mute in verse 9. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. 
In other words, so when he says, do not make me the scorn of the fool in verse 8, he's asking for restoration and repentance, and he doesn't want the wicked again to understand or to know that what has fallen out according or on David has fallen out by God's hand. He doesn't want to remain in that position. He doesn't want to be a byword in the wicked's mouth. Because this will encourage, as I said, their unbelief again. It will encourage their scorning. It will encourage their rebellion against God, all of which he does not desire. His overarching concern, though, third, his pain is due to the hostility of Yahweh's hand. He recognizes that whatever else might be involved in his suffering is secondary cause. You know, you ever hear about first and secondary cause? It might be a little confusing. I won't talk about it at length tonight, but first cause is that nothing happens outside of God's control. That's, that's fundamental. We believe God is sovereign. Nothing happens outside of his control, which is a, an absolutely imperative truth that we believe. There are no maverick molecules, R.C. Sproul used to say. But the difficulty there is that we understand that sinners sin and do wicked. How, how do we understand that? Well, we understand that we take part in wicked deeds as secondary causes. We're the ones that carry them out. We're the ones that willingly culp in, in, in are culpable for doing evil. But as we know, even that is something that God must in the very least, allow, which that word maybe not be strong enough. The greatest sin that ever was committed was the sin that put Christ to death. God didn't merely allow that. He ordained that that happened. And everyone that took part in that, and that were guilty in that, were indeed culpable for their evil. So David understands this. In the last two phrases of verse 11, again, accords with what the Bible uniformly teaches about life under the sun, Yes, God is sovereign over this difficulty. It's, it's according to God's hand this is coming. But, but this is what's universal about man. You consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is vanity or a mere breath. Now, that might seem radical, but remember what Jesus said. Jesus taught us not to lay up for ourselves treasures on the earth. Now, does that mean that we don't love our children, our wives, our spouses? Absolutely not. But we have to live with truth in regards to these things in the world that God gives us. We have to give thanks for everything. Every good thing is a, all good things are a gift from above, but not all of those things will stand the test of time. You know, we have nice vehicles that get us from point A to point B. I like this analogy because I, I used to look at vehicles and lust over, oh, that's so cool and I got to have that, that one. And now what I love to do is I love to look at those vehicles that 10 years ago I used to look on Kauai, it's awesome because everything rusts away. And so this is great. You can teach your kids all the time. So, so you look at this vehicle that you thought, oh, if you just had that, then life would be easy. And now that thing is a hunk of junk. It's literally rust-eaten. It's, it's for the trash pile, the whatever, the junkyard, right? Jesus taught us that very thing. 
And David once again cries out with the preacher, All mankind is a mere breath. His grief and pain and concern are all very real, and we will take part in this concern. If not, that we haven't already. We'll take part at some point in the concern that David has. We'll look back on our years and we'll say, it's just a glimpse. What was it all for? All those years chasing that person around or all that. What, what was all that for? How we, however, we, we step back a little bit from this psalm and we have to a much greater degree even when, when it comes to verse 7 again, which I think is the crux of the psalm, that he hopes in God, we have much more underneath us that causes us to hope in God. Knowing these things, 1 Corinthians 15, 32, Paul says, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. This is the same thing the preacher concludes with. If all is vanity under the sun, if this is all there is, and it's all vanity, which is his conclusion, under the sun then let's eat and drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But he says, he qualifies that, if the dead are not raised. In other words, if there's nothing else than what is under the sun. But listen to what he says. Verse 17, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have also fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope only in this life, we are of all people most to be pitied. Then he ends here. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits, that means those who believe in him will follow him of those who have fallen asleep. The resurrection, which is demonstrated to be true in Christ and from Christ promised to be produced in us who are united to him by faith, means that futility, the vanity of life, has lost this is what he says in verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor. What is, he, what is he lamenting? What is David lamenting? The vanity of labor at one point, right? And Paul says, your labor is not in vain in the Lord. It's not in vain. It's not for nothing. So all of the little things matter. They all matter. But we don't trust in them. Our hope isn't in them. We're not treasuring them. We're not storing them up. So in the mercy of God, we can look back at this psalm, applying our hearts to understanding it, recognizing our own impulses and our own weaknesses in it. Without God, the, the bleak picture of this psalm is absolutely true. It's bleak, life under the sun. We see it in both the brokenness of our condition and the sure hope that God is to us. Yes, I think it's important to say it's, it's bleak, but it also has beauty. There's beauty even for those that are transient, right? Those who are, don't have hope in God. It's important to, to recognize even the common grace of the rain that falls, the, the flowers that bloom, the air that they smell and breathe, the good that comes to man, comes to man from God, even to sinners, but for sinners, there's nothing else. There's nothing else. And that's where David is applying his wisdom here. There is no hope in God for those who are the wicked until they repent and come to faith. Third, in his closing prayer, verses 12 and 13, 
Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears. At my tears. For I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. David's final confession and prayer demonstrates humility and a desire to be relieved from chastisement. And don't we all? Wouldn't we all? We do. In this life, we do not want to be under the chastisement of God. He's a sojourner with God, he says. But this doesn't indicate that he believes that God will leave him, but rather that his time on earth is short. The Jew, with all the promises of their land inheritance, if you go to Psalm 37, all the time it keeps coming up, the land inheritance, the promised land, the your people, the righteous, will inherit the land. They understood that with all of those promises, the land was still temporal. But, but this very important truth was part of those land promises, that the land was the Lord. That, that uh, Not the Lord. It was the Lord's. It belonged to him. And the reason why the land promise was so valuable, because God promised that when you are on that land, I will be with you. The presence of God. The land shall not be sold in perpetuity. Leviticus 25, 23. For the land is mine. And listen to this. For you are strangers and sojourners with me. In other words, the land is not, you're not going to inhabit it forever. I'm there. David is saying, I'm a sojourner a guest with you like my father's, and he's meaning there on the land that you gave us. When I leave that land, that, that demonstrates it's going to happen, and it did happen to David. He understood that. So this verse in, that I read in Leviticus 25, 23 emphasizes that David is, he says, I'm a sojourner with you. By the way, you and I are called sojourners, pilgrims, Hebrews chapter 4. We're sojourners and pilgrims. That's something that in the Christian concept, in our theology, in our minds, in our thinking, we need to have a category that we're not of this world. We're passing, you know, the song, I don't know if you know that, just the passing through, right? Yes, we have responsibilities and duties and we have purpose in this world. I think we have more so underneath us than any uh, people group in the world, meaning all religions and all ideas. Uh, ideologies. They all fail in regards to why people should live a certain way in this world. We have all of the reason to live for the glory of God and everything we do, do our best for the glory of God. And yet, we're not going to be here forever. We're sojourners. Our place is with God. That's our end. That's the end for which we've been saved, is to be with Him in an immediate presence and David is emphasizing this aspect of the life of faith, that he's a sojourner. Verse 13, he says, Look away from me, that I may smile again before I depart and then no more. When I first read that, I, I just thought instantly to the ironic blessing, which is, you know, cause your face to shine upon us. Lift up your countenance upon us. And I thought, wow, he's asking God to look away from him. But it's very clear that he's, he's saying this in the sense of Peter's repentance, if, as it were, or understanding of who he is in light of a holy God when Peter says, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. He, he sees the works of Jesus, and this is when Peter was called. 
he's out there fishing, and Jesus, throw out your, one more time, okay, I'll do it. And he hauls this, ship, this whole shipment, or I don't know what you call that, payload of fish in. And, and David's over there, and he just is broken because he understands this is holy. He's holy, and I'm not. I think that's David's heart here. His focus is not on God's removal of his gracious presence, but of his discipline here. And he understands that God is holy, and he is not. And so he says, look away from me in your displeasure, I think we could add, that I may smile again. He wants, he wants God to be pleased with him before I depart and am no more. Now, there's something for us in all of this. When we go through trials, and just really briefly, it's important that we don't assume everything we go through is because of some particular sin that we've committed. Not everything that we experience is because I sinned last week, Tuesday, I, you know, I, I don't know what you did. You did something. I sinned on Tuesday, and so on Thursday, I got a canker sore, you know? That's really dangerous to just start assuming that everything that happens to us is as a result of sin. We do not believe in karma as Christians. It drives me crazy when I see Christians talking about karma. God is gracious, but God does discipline. So what do we think about when we go through trials? It ought to be an opportunity for us to see something about God and his relationship to us, about how we relate to him. Hebrews is so merciful. This, reading Psalms like this, should uh, humble us. It should also cause us to praise the Lord for the hope that we have in Christ. Look at Hebrews 12, 5 and, or through 7, or you can listen up. I'll read it. He says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. It's not a light thing. It's not a little thing. It's weighty nor be weary when reproved by him. Now, David is weary in this psalm, isn't he? It's, I would say it's almost, without the help of God, without the Holy Spirit, we will be wearied by God's discipline. But here we're admonished, we're exhorted. We don't have to be downcast when we're disciplined. Listen, this is why. In this sense, for the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. Patience, faith, it's an enduring. It's not just here and then gone as soon as something hard happens. And here is just so important. God is treating you as sons. Sons there is important. It doesn't mean that daughters are left out. It means that you have an inheritance. In this day, the son was the one with an inheritance. He's speaking to church, a church. Daughters are included. But he's saying he's treating you as those who have an eternal inheritance. So it's not in vain. It's not just for the moment. It's for eternal good. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? That is, a father that loves his child does. And so we can take this. We can take this with the psalm and we can understand 
the grief of David. We can understand what he cries out. We are so small. You concern ourselves, yourself with us. Why? But then we ask that question. You concern yourself with us. Why do you love us so much? You can ask it that way too. The important thing is, is that we come back to that verse 7. And when we ask that question, where do I turn? Oh Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. That is the answer and the response of faith. Something that should be sung by the church. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for this psalm. Lord, this, these psalms are so, uh, they're so powerful. They're so weighty. And we need to reckon them. We need to go through life with a joy that is informed and a sobriety that's informed by the hardship that so many face. Oftentimes we won't consider those who go through trials or hardship because we, we don't give enough uh, thought to your word, what it says about them. Lord, we don't want to leave each other off when we suffer. We want to know that it is real. It's hard. We want to be helped. We want to help others. We want to know that we are vulnerable. We are, Lord. Apart from you, we can do nothing. Apart from you, it is all vanity, vanities, Lord, in the end. Um, but with you, with Christ, Lord, all that vanity turns to hope. That vanity is, is not in itself our hope, but all these temporal things that you bless us with are means that we can render praise back to you, render our works back to you. Render our efforts, our labors, whatsoever you do, do it mightily, heartily unto the Lord and not unto men. Lord, you've given us every, every means at our disposal to live this life for the glory of your name with hope, even though it may be hard. We pray that you'd be glorified in this song as we sing. In Jesus' name, amen.